Adiba's story really struck me, not just because of what she survived, but the way she's pulled herself out, remade herself, and the way she's giving back so that people won't have to suffer the way she and her family and her people did. I'm Melissa Fleming, and welcome to this special edition of Awake at Night for World Humanitarian Day. Adiba Kasim is from the Yazidi minority in northern Iraq. In August 2014, her village was stormed by Islamic State militants who killed and enslaved thousands of Yazidis. Adiba and her family managed to escape just before the militants arrived. She was 19 years old. At seven in the morning, the relatives, they called my father and they said that we are now coming to the north because the Islamic State at three in the morning attacked us. And many people have been killed and, and it is very difficult, so run away, get out of your house. She was haunted by the knowledge that many of her friends and relatives were taken captive by Islamic State and held as sex slaves. Some survived and when they were freed, Adiba was there to help. They were physically and mentally sick. It was difficult because the first question they were asking was, were you also kidnapped? Because at the beginning they were thinking that everyone were kidnapped, taken as slaves. And sometimes some of them were just, you know, during the night shouting and crying and saying that no one of you is feeling what we've been through. No one understands us. I was trying to just sit with them and talk. I was there for everyone. <laughs> This was the beginning of her work as a humanitarian. Today, Adiba is a refugee in Switzerland, where she is studying at the University of Geneva and working as a fellow at the Geneva Center for Security Policy. It's a long way from the small village in northern Iraq, where she grew up. Adiba, it's so great to have you here, and uh, thank you so much for joining us for the podcast Awake at Night here in our studios in Geneva. Welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Can you just tell us where you're from and describe what your village was like, where you okay. grew up? I came from a village called Khanasur. We can say a town in northern Iraq. So I was very close to the Syrian border. Um, my childhood there, it was not easy. It was very difficult. What were the circumstances of your birth? I mean, what made it difficult? We are from a minority, from the Yazidi minority. And as you know, we have been through so many genocides in the past, in our history. But in my case, it was uh, difficult because I was not recognized when I was born. I was born in 93 and I became the victim of the war in the 80s, the Iraq-Iran war. So when I was born, I was not recognized. I had no identity. I, mm, it was because your, your mother's husband at the time had fought in that war and, yes, and died. Yes, she was married with, with her cousin. 
then um, in the 80s uh, he was forced by Saddam you know all everyone had to go by force to to fight and he was taken and then actually he was killed in Iran and my mother she waited for so many years but um, after she lost hopes she she started a new life with my father so in 1992 she got married with my father and then they went to the government to um, to make their marriage certification. But then they told her that you were married and you were not divorced, so it's not possible. She said, but my husband was killed in Iran. They asked her, where are the date certification and papers and so on? She said, but the body never came back. They said, it's not possible. So they didn't recognize the marriage of my parents. And when I was born, I was not recognized. I was not existed. You were stateless? Yes. So your mother wanted to enroll you in the school, and what happened? Yeah, the school were not not accepting because I don't have an ID. And so all your friends entered into the yes. school? And, and my you cousins, couldn't. my friends, everyone were going. Um, I was always dreaming when I was sleeping. I was always dreaming that I am in the school, that I am writing, having books. And I was always pretending, you know. Even I was always borrowing the books of my friends and reading with them and studying with them. But, um, yeah. And sometimes you, you actually went to the school. And how uh, did you cope with this situation? As I said, the school was not far from our house. My friends, um, the other children in the village were going to school. So I was walking with them, staying outside from the window and listening and learning by the window. I was I was not able to enter the school. So you actually stood outside the classrooms. Yeah. Mm, there was um, you know the the guard of the school was always coming and kicking me out of there, saying go away, don't watch and so on. But I was from going running from the other side and going to to different uh, class classrooms and the windows. Yeah. So you actually got your education somehow by yourself yes i've been always proud and i was always having something inside of me when i was little i was like yes yes i will read and write and then i will go to school and show it to people and then they will give me a chance to to do it and actually i did exactly that so i've been studying alone until 2013 and then i, I met a person um, from ministry of Educa- education Okay, I will, I will say, after 2003, when Saddam was gone, then Iran started to give the bodies uh, to Iraq. The body of my mother's husband arrived in 2003. And then my father could make our papers. And then in 2008, actually, I was recognized. So you got your first documentation. Yes, I was a teenager. At the age of... I was having a boyfriend. <laughs> and it was too late to go to school, to the primary and so on. But I, I already had a good level at that age. I was 15, 14. And I started to look for chances, actually. And uh, I, in 2013, I met this person uh, who came from the Ministry of Education from Mosul. And I said, you can make a test with me, I can make an exam, but just give me a chance. I mean, What did he say to you? He was so happy. He said, okay. Uh, he took me to the uh, blackboard. He was saying, 
poems about education and pain and, and so on. And I was writing. And then um, he was proud and he was happy. He said, you can come and you can um, do the exams. But the risk, I have to go to Mosul. And I am from Sinjar, from a minority, a woman, an Yazidi. Mosul was very dangerous. Sometimes the soldiers on the checkpoints were telling me, go back and who is asking about school and in this situation, you are, you are so young, and go back home. I was like, no. But you passed the exam. I passed the exams. Adiba, can you just tell me a bit about the Yazidi people, just for people who don't know, mm-hmm. what does it mean to be Yazidi? We are an ethnic religious minority. We are one of, I think, the oldest religion in the, in the Middle East. We Yazidi, they are in Sinjar in northern Iraq. They are in Syria, in Turkey, and before they were in Iran as well, but almost they are finished. And they migrated to other countries. So now we have big community in Russia, in Armenia, in Georgia, in the U.S., in Canada, in Germany. They are almost now everywhere. Our language was not recognized. Yazidis were, were not able to have a voice. What was the community like? What kind of memories yeah, uh, do you have? We were very poor. But uh, we were so happy. We were very happy people. It was just, my village was just amazing, you know. People were dancing a lot. They were happy. They were, uh, yeah. They're always proud, you know, having uh, this culture. And they always say that uh, 74 genocides couldn't couldn't destroy us. We were also, you know, we have, we have the mountain, the Sinjar mountain, which is, which was, the mountain that in, in so many genocides that saved my people. 2014, the last genocide, many people were running and they were going to the mountain and this is how most of them now they are alive. Mm-hmm. And they're still, there comes, they're still now living on the top of the mountains since 2014. They're not able to go back to their uh, villages. But um, yes, live in my uh, village, we were going to the mountains every Wednesday. It's our ho- um, holiday. We have our holy places and uh, every year we are celebrating and um, renewing these holy places and so on. Mm. So yeah, it was um, it was a simple life, but it was beautiful. We had peace. And Until 2014, yeah. when Islamic State militants captured Sinjar and other towns, including your village um, in northern Iraq, and they targeted Yazidis. Tens of thousands of Yazidis had to flee, including you. Um, many of them were captured, kidnapped. Uh, others didn't survive. Um, can you just tell me about what happened on that fateful day? Well, on 3rd of August 2014, early morning we were sleeping on the roof of our house. In Sinjar, it was very hot. We had relatives actually in the, in the south Sinjar which is the first part that was taken by the Islamic State. Uh, at 7 in the morning, the relatives, they called my father and they said that we are now coming to the north because the Islamic State at 3 in the morning attacked us. And many people have been killed and, and it is very difficult, so run away, get out of your house. It was shocking. Many people were, were started to to take their cars and to put their families and their clothes and just to run to the mountains. No one knew where they are going. I mean, we were surrounded by the Islamic State. And 
actually after Mosul was taken in, in June by the Islamic State and then the, the Kurdish forces they came like uh, I don't know 7,000 or I don't know how many they came and they, they said we're gonna protect Sinjar and nothing will happen to you and they even didn't let us to leave before that but actually when the Islamic State arrived they all left us and we were left alone and we had no even weapons to fight we had nothing we were left alone. And before that, they told us that Kurdistan also um, closed the border, that we cannot also go to Kurdistan. We have to stay here and nothing will happen to us. And that's why many, many people didn't go to Kurdistan directly and, and, and they were killed and kidnapped. So um, at seven in the morning, uh, we were shocked and uh, uh, my father was saying, we will not leave, we have to stay here, nothing will happen. and. Uh, and also my other relatives, they were saying, no, we, we are not going, nothing will happen. Our Arab neighbors, the Muslims who were, who were in the neighbor village, they also called us and they said, oh, don't run away, it's nothing. They are just coming to take the power, but uh, stay there and we're going we gonna to protect you. But actually the, the Arab neighbors, they were the first ones who who started to take women and to kill men and so on. And um, yeah, I, I forced my father and my brothers and I said, we have to go. Almost 70% of Sinjar was taken and we were still home. So at, at 11, 30, 12 in the noon, I forced my father and my brothers. We were 14 people in a small car. We tried to run and after 10 minutes, they arrived at my village. And all my other relatives, 70 people, were taken. And actually they were taken by the neighbors, not by the, the, the stranger Islamic state who just arrived. So they were taken by the neighbors. The, the neighbors one, who had colluded with yeah, the Islamic state. Yeah. So, so you escaped by 10 minutes. Yeah. I was so lucky. But yeah leaving the village, so many accidents, it was terrible. People got killed in front of us because um, we were running, the Peshmerga, the, the Kurdish forces, they left us and they were trying actually to, to hide themselves and then PKK came from the Syria to protect us and there was this clash and people were killed. Um, also, I have half-brothers who are older than me. They were also, one of them was also driving his car and we had accidents and the car, uh, his car was not uh, working. But then this fight happened and we left him and we said, everyone will save his soul and that's all. And actually we didn't know if he and his family are alive or they were killed at that moment. After a few days, then we discovered that they are alive. Everyone were just thinking of his on, on Seoul. Where did you escape to? Actually, it normally takes one hour to arrive to Kurdistan, to a safe area, but it, we left at 12, and we arrived there in the night. When we were in, we were in a safe area, our gas was, was finished, our car, and we decided to sleep on the street, but then um, there was a little uh, shop little grocery shop and also they were having some gas a little bit so we went and we asked if they can give us some gas 
they say you will not go anywhere and they hosted us in their house and yeah that night we stayed there we we took shower we eat and then the next morning we went to another area in kurdistan and we we found an unfinished building and we went to there we asked the owner of this unfinished building if we can stay there we were so many families all together in this building it's not clean no enough water no toilets and so on so we stayed there and then uh, i was just looking at my siblings and my parents and we cannot do anything and they feel bad they cannot do anything they feel guilty and isis we are also close a few kilometers so we had to run away from there as well and we said let's go close to the border the iraqi turkish border so we went to Zaho. We went there and actually we went to a school. Everyone were living in this school. We were actually living outside, you know, with our blankets and so on. And we had nothing with us, only the clothes that we were wearing, just a pyjama. Yeah. And then um, we stay in this school for like 15 days, trying to discover and to check who is still alive, who is kidnapped, what happened. And then we realized that that all our relatives are taken to Syria. And uh, we were still in touch with some of them. They were having their phones with them in the beginning. But what were they telling you? They they didn't know actually where they are going. And then we, lo- we lost the contacts. And then what did you do? And then uh, we, we stayed in, in this school um, for 15 days and it was very difficult. And then organizations and people were giving us food and their bl- and blankets and clothes and so on. And I paid to a driver and I took my family to Turkey. I mean, the driver drive us to the border, to the mountains. And in the mountains, we've been walking and climbing and yeah, it took us two days to arrive. So you ended up in Turkey and in a yes. camp? Or? And at that time, we, you know, we lost trust and we, we lost everything. When we almost entered the Turkey, then the Turkish um, soldiers were coming and trying to take us back and saying, go back home and so on. We said, we, we lost everything. We have no more to lose. If you want to kill us, do it, but we are not going back home. So they left us and we continue our work. And then the families actually came from this village and saying, will coming us and so on but we didn't we were not trusting them we were saying no we cannot go we cannot continue but then they came and they spoke in Kurmanji with us and saying uh, we have some your language yes because they're Kurd and we also have Yazidis in Turkey we stayed in a school and then they moved us by their cars to this military uh, camp and um, then me and my family we, we were seven people we stayed in a, in a small three meters room and it was our uh, everything our kitchen our sleeping and we all were sleeping you know next to each other and you what were you doing ah i <laughs> i was active in a way i was cleaning actually cleaning the camp and trying to wash the doors and the, the windows and um, but you also um continued your education in this camp. <laughs> <laughs> yes um I was not speaking any English. I wanted to speak. I wanted to say 
what happened so i i um there was one guy speaking in uh, in english in the camp i was always following him <laughs> wherever he was going i was following him and taking words and making sentence you know where we came from what is my age i couldn't give up i was always fighting i was always looking for something new so meanwhile you're hearing news um probably trickling out about what was happening uh, particularly to the women probably some of your friends of course yeah i mean my my cousins my friends i mean some of them they did suicide directly to not be touched by them so i was hearing all of that and having this guilt inside of me as well what was the guilt you know if i was 10 minutes late i would be one of them feeling very guilty that i am free now and and they are they are taking on so on yeah I do it. It was terrible. Oh, it was you crazy. You made a decision then about your siblings, I believe. Yes, people started to leave. They started to take boats and to go to Greece from right, Turkey. Right, because this was now the beginning also of the what Europe called this the refugee crisis exactly. when Syrians and Iraqis started taking to, the yeah. boats uh, from through Turkey into Greece. Yes. And, also i when people started to leave i also put my brothers in a in a boat and i um, and i sent them to europe how old were they um well first i sent my sister and my little brother my sister she was 19 and my brother he was 12 i sent them by walking my other brothers one of them he was 20 and the other one he was 16 i put them in a boat and they went to Lesbos, yes. Where? Where did they end up? Uh, first, they ended up in, in Lesbos, and then the organizations uh, helped them and took them to Germany, and they put put them with my other siblings together in Germany. Your family, your whole family, is, except for you, are now together yes. in Germany. Yes, I never wanted to leave. I always wanted to be home. And as I say, I was having this guilt inside of me. I was like, it's impossible. It's it's easy to just, you know, close your eyes and just to go. It's very, very easy to go to start a new life. But uh, I choose to be in the reality. I choose to be in the community. So I sent my siblings and I told my parents that I need to go back home. So I went back to Iraq in 2015. Yeah. And what did you do there? I went to a rehabilitation center supporting and helping the, the women who have been sick slaves and who managed to survive with their children. So this was your first? Yes. You became a humanitarian worker? Yeah. They uh, just managed they to just escape? They just managed to escape and coming and holding all this pain with them and they were physically and mentally sick and we had to take them to the hospital and then trying to... What was your role? I was more uh, translating and watching them and doing activities with them but it it was difficult because the first question they were asking was were you also kidnapped so they asked you that yeah because at the beginning they were thinking that everyone were kidnapped every everyone were taken as slaves yeah it was it was difficult and sometimes some of them were just you know during the night shouting and crying and saying that no one of you is feeling what we've been through, no one understands us. We are dying, yeah. And you were staying there with them? Yes. 
in the same house and I was not sleeping sometimes in the night and I had to translate sometimes till two in the morning because I don't sleep so I was trying to just sit with them and talk and to but they were also looking for someone to hear to listen to them I was there for everyone <laughs> can you remember one story in particular that really yeah I mean all of them I mean all of them they, they've been through so much and but there was uh, actually two young girls. They were like 15 and 16. One of them, she gave birth under, under the captivities. And she had the pictures of her child with her. And the child was taken from her after she was, after she gave birth. And she was just 16 years old. Yeah, and she was, yeah, suffering. And, and shouting and she was not telling it to everyone so she you know talking to me and the other one a girl she was she was um, 15 years old and how she was bought and sold and how her father was hiding here and how they met her here and everything like a boy to not be taken to wear the boys clothes to not be taken but then boys were taken to the military camps and then she had to be taken by the by the forces as a slave and then when she found a, a way to get out and how the smuggler also raped her in the road and, and so on so these two it's always staying with me you know I, I'm holding with me wherever I go yeah these kinds of stories that you took in from the survivors of these horrific crimes does that how does holding these stories inside of you influence who you are today? There is these feelings of anger, you know. I always question why it happened. But at the same time, I always think we are very strong. I always think that those who are the most strongest people have been fighting back. They've been trying to leave again. Now these, these two girls are living their life. One of them, she started her life in Australia and the other one in Germany. So I'm, I'm so proud of them. And uh, yeah, so much pain, so much pain, but at the same time, you know, I'm proud, you know, proud of where I came from, proud of my community, no matter what we've been through. But of course, so much anger. I'm here in Geneva, let's say, the capital of human rights and so on. Not everyone wants to listen, not everyone wants to understand. Yes, we are respiring, you know. They love when we, we speak, they love when we tell our stories. But what after? Do you feel that it's your mission to continue to tell the stories or to, to give back or to help people? How has this influenced like, the I, future of your life, your Yeah, your I mean, for, for the moment, I am trying to raise awareness about the genocide, you know, what happened and how it happened. How is the life in the war? I don't know. I I also feel that there's so much responsibility, you know, on my on my shoulders. I lost also after the genocide, you know, friends with me, the journalists and very very close friends. Uh, they've been killed also in Mosul during the during the liberation, who were trying to go on to uh, to save these people, trying to look for women because they were hiding in Mosul. And, and and I'm taking this responsibility, you know, as as they give me 
their job and they left. So this is what I'm taking. Yeah. You were doing this this humanitarian work um, with the Yazidi women and girls who had managed to escape. But at a certain point, I think you you moved on from that. What what did you do next? I start to work on documentation because uh, documenting the genocide is very important. There were not, not many women who were doing this job. And I was saying that it's very important to have a woman there because so many women were taken. Their story has to be told. So I started to document, actually. I was um, working with again with women and, again, listening to their stories and taking every single thing, every single point. And also the child soldiers, the Yazidi children who were um, brainwashed. But it was not easy. They were very, very brainwashed. And then working and going to the jails because there were also some Muslim children who were involved with ISIS. They were underage in the, um, in the prisons. And uh, in, in Kurdistan, I was visiting them and trying to find some rehabilitation support for them because it doesn't work like this. They will grow up and become adult in the prison. And then when they are out, they are the future terrorists. We need to find some education and rehabilitation for them. And then uh, I started to join international media and to go back home, to really go back home and to go to see my city again. Can you describe that first moment when you went back to your city and saw what it looked like? It was empty, it was dry, it was, everything was like yellow. So many bones, so many mass graves. There were only some soldiers there. No more life there. So it was no more home. No, everything was changed. I can you imagine some even now sometimes in the nights I don't sleep because I remember the smell, the smell of dead bodies, and because it were some of them were still not from very long time and and so on animals um, it was just like that yeah yeah and then uh, I started to work and to go through to every single mass grave and to document and to yeah to check they were all old people not old but old for them for old ISIS for the ISIS man. yeah <laughs> they were killed there and when you say you were documenting it you were what what was what we was we have an organization called Yazidi Documentation Yazidi mm-hmm. Organization for Documentation. It was born after the genocide and trying to take ev- every single evidence. And so, and I was the only woman in my community doing this job, going and saying in the, in the, in the front lines. There were only men, and I was also scared. Not How scared, did the men but they react to you. The Yazidi this? men, they were. They were very proud and they were happy to have me there and it was amazing. Adiba, you have um, actually very beautiful short haircut. But um, <laughs> I think, would tell me about your hair because I think hair has special meaning in, in the Yazidi culture and what it was like when you were a girl and what it means to have cut it all off. Uh, yes, I had a very long hair. Actually, um, in, in my community, many women, they have this long hair and it's symbol of beauty and women normally 
were not cutting their hair. They cut it only when they are sad. So if they lost the husband, the boyfriend or whatever. And I was having this very long hair. I never cut my hair before 2015. Yeah, I cut everything. I was no more interested to have it on me. And I just so much sadness with it, you know, and I just threw everything away. You know, having so much pain and going back to Iraq and seeing everything and it was a real and then it was like I I realized everything then because the genocide happened and I left and then we're going back home in 2015 and then realizing how much we lost so you were facing it yeah I, I yeah I faced <laughs> it being in the reality is, is it's very important and you see now I have no more hair <laughs> yeah, you have beautiful you have a beautiful elegant short haircut <laughs> yeah. cut everything and uh, looking very smart but now you're here um, actually in beautiful Geneva what brought you here to Geneva and what what did you first encounter when you got here in 2017 I lost this very close friend and I got some problems and so on. Who was the friend? Um, he was called Shaheen. He was a very close friend to me. And uh, he was killed in, in Mosul while he was saving a little girl. He was killed by a sni- sniper. sniper. Yeah. So, and I think he, he just took half of me with him, really. I mean, I still cannot cannot recover from that. It's... If every time I mean I see something about him, I feel that it's today, you know, it's just he was just just a very good human being. And then I lost him and I lost some other people in Sinjar and I got some problems and I was not able to go home because uh, the government, they were scared that I will go to the group that they don't like. It became impossible to move. It became impossible to continue my job or to go to home, my hometown, my village that I grew up. I couldn't go. And then um, I left with Turkey. It was it was not a choice to leave. It was never a choice to leave, actually. I couldn't imagine myself again, you know, being a refugee and see, seeking asylum somewhere. It is very hard. It's very, very, very hard. So I, I left Iraq October 30, 2017. And I arrived in Turkey, and I went to the Swiss embassy and explaining what happened. And they say you have to be safe and you should not even stay in Turkey because it was not safe for me. So I get my visa and I arrived here, and I I ask asylum here in Switzerland. But uh, I think it's the most difficult thing I've been through. It was the most difficult thing mm-hmm. you've been through. Yeah. Why? Why is that? I had to go to um, to another place to to ask for asylum, and then uh, you have a tissue. Yeah. <laughs> so I again I left everything um, behind me and leaving Iraq, and, and then and I arrived here and I directly. Uh, I asked for asylum and explained my situation. I arrived there and it was dark and 
arriving in Switzerland, so much snow, so cold. I was, and I was very sad. And why I have to go as for asylum? Why I um, arrive here? Why I had to leave my home and leave everything behind? It was very, it was very difficult. I went to this uh, asylum seeker and center, and then seeing so many refugees from all over the world and. It was very difficult. I was just looking at people and just crying. I was not, not, I forgot myself and I started to cry about them. And some of them are telling that this is 30 days that they are walking until they arrived here and so on. It was very hard. And then they, uh, they took my information and they, they took me, they say that uh, we're going to show you your room that where you're going to stay. They give me, uh, they gave me a blanket and they took me to this room. I, when I opened, I entered the room and there was a woman with a veil. I said, oh, she's from Middle East. She was crying on her bed. And actually she was from Yemen. She was a lawyer from, from Yemen. She was the first person who came and, and we spoke in Arabic together and we both just directly cried and we hugged each other. And then after that, we, we started to talk and she started to explain things to me and we became friends and we started to smile on bed. Diva, I have to say, you're here for one year and six months, and I'm going to fast forward, and then you're going to tell me how you got there, but you are actually studying law in French at the University of Geneva, and you have a fellowship at the prestigious Geneva Center for Security Policy. How did you get from being in this <laughs> asylum center and to be studying law and um, teaching soldiers about war and your experience? I managed to find a Swiss family and I've been explaining them my situation and they host me. They host me in their, in their house so I could feel safe. So um, I stayed with this family and, and then I... Uh, now I started to check and to see what is around. I'm in Switzerland. I, what are the opportunities? Actually, with the Swiss amnesty, um, um, I know someone there who is working. And he was, since 2015 almost, he has been working on the Yazidi situation and trying to raise awareness about the genocide. And then he asked me if it's possible to write an article about how I came from Mosul to Gruyere to, to this region in Fribourg and so on. Um, I said, okay. So um, the article was published in a newspaper here in Geneva. And then the director of the Geneva Center of Security Policy, uh, Christian Doucet, uh, he found the article and he invited me here. And this is how I landed here in Geneva. That's yeah, it was just it's just amazing, and and in this in this Geneva Center for Security Policy, I really found my home. Really, I always say, you know, I've been thinking before that home is the piece of land, but no, I was wrong. Home is is the people around you. You know, when you feel safe, you feel good, you feel accepted. Yeah, so this is what I found here at the Geneva Center for Security Policy. Adiba, what do you want to do in the future? Okay, what I want to do in the future. So now, um, after 18 years, uh, not, not being able to go to school with this uh, self-education, I have been accepted at the University of Geneva, been accepted here. And um, I'm taking you know, my career. I will study international relations and law 
doing human rights in the future? Well, I already started. <laughs> I'm not going to start. I already started. Um, but as I always say, future is big, and uh, I'm working hard on it. <laughs> I uh, all I want to do in the future is to um, to fight for the refugees' right, to fight for the weak communities. We 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 want to be accepted, you know. We're human beings, you know. I am like anyone who just, you know, walk on the street here in, in, in Geneva. But if anything happened, you know, I, they could always say, oh, she was a refugee, oh, she is a refugee, and point me and so on. So this is an, this is something that I want to work on in, in my future. Yeah, but of course, I will be always fighting for my community and on the genocide and recognizing this genocide is not only today and tomorrow. It will take us maybe to next generations. So we, this generation who face this genocide, we have to fight, we have to really to study, we have to learn more and to be able to save the next generations. And, and this is a responsibility that I am taking. You mentioned to me that you might want to pursue a humanitarian career. Yes. Adiba, I'm sure that there's a lot that you have nightmares about, but <laughs> what is keeping you awake at night? Uh, what's um, waking me at night is that something is waking me at night. It's reminding me that that I am I am strong, that I can continue and that I can do it. And uh, I think I, I I smile, you know, I, I smile and I go back uh, to sleep. I'm, I'm never worried. I'm a person, I'm never worried. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, I've been uh, through all of these, these bad things, but uh, I learned so much also. I've been, uh, war and bad things never, never put me down. I've been using the war and I've been using all these bad experiences to build myself and to create a message and to, te to, to teach and to tell the world that, hey, we should not worry, we can do it. It is possible and we can change. And this is all I learned. And I'm saying this to myself every day and every night. What is also making, push me to continue, it is, it, is, it is my region, it's where I came from. I'm always proud. I'm always proud of where I came from and what I've been through brought me uh, where I am today. Adiba, thank you so much for sharing your story, your painful story, but also the story of your remarkable strength on this podcast, I have to say I'm really proud to know you, and I know that you are going to change the world. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this special edition of Awake at Night. To find out more about the series and the extraordinary people featured, do visit unhcr.org slash awakeatnight. Find us on Facebook at UNHCR, and on Twitter, we're at Refugees, and I'm at Melissa R. Fleming. You can follow Adiba on Kasim Adiba. And please spread the word about the series using the hashtag Awake at Night. Subscribe to Awake at Night wherever you get your podcasts, and please take the time to review us. Thanks to the fantastic design and studio teams here at UNHCR and to my producers, Bethany Bell and Laura Sheeter of Chalk and Blade. 
The sound design was by Pascal Wise, and the original music for the podcast was written and performed by Nadine Shaw and produced by Ben Hillier. <laughs>